Welcome to this Maples Group podcast. I'm Andrew Quinn. I'm Global Head of Tax at Maples Group. We are an international financial services organization and law firm with 3,000 professionals spread over 18 jurisdictions. We're joining you today from a sunny Dublin, Ireland, and I'm joined by two colleagues, Lynn Kramer, who is a tax partner at our Irish law firm, and Sheila Lawler, who is Group Tax Director. We're going to chat about EU DAC 6, which is the EU mandatory disclosure regime requiring the reporting by intermediaries of certain cross-border transactions and some bad things happen if you don't follow the rules. We're going to recap on where we are with DAC 6. We're going to talk about some important new developments and we're going to finish with a look at the compliance aspects, particularly the technological approach to that and how we moved from a third-party solution to building our own technological solution. So first, Lynn, will you give us a recap on DAC6? How did we get to where we are today? Sure. It feels to me like we've been talking about DAC6 forever, but practically we've probably been dealing with it for about the last five or so years between preparing for its implementation and post-implementation work, which we're going to talk about today. It's only fair to bring everyone else into the conversation through this podcast, I think. In terms of the timeline, DAC6 derives from an EU directive which was adopted by the EU in 2018. It was then implemented in Ireland through Finance Act 2019 and the first reports were due in early 2021. And to do a very brief recap of the rules themselves. So DAC6, as you mentioned, requires reporting of certain cross-border arrangements or what we would say transactions for shorthand which meet one of a number of specific hallmarks. Those hallmarks describe transactions that, according to the background discussions to DAC6, the EU considers to be indicative of some form of tax avoidance or tax-driven structuring. There's around 21 hallmarks in total, and I'm not going to run through them all here, but just to give some examples, which will show the breadth of transactions covered, a reportable cross-border arrangement can include a transaction where deductible payments are made, to an associated entity in a zero or low tax jurisdiction. And you'd say, okay, fair enough, that has some tax indicative aspects to it. But it can also involve more innocuous transactions, such as transactions where standardised documents are used, where loss-making companies are acquired, or where assets are transferred cross-border within a group. Lynn, that last one, assets transferred within a group, I think that the technical reference is E3. I believe that's the most common hallmark, at least in our experience. Yeah, anecdotally, we understand that the majority of reportable arrangements in Ireland to date have fallen under that E3 or E2 category. And it's worth maybe just pointing out that there is an additional test within DAC6, which is the main benefit test, which asks whether the main benefit of the transaction was the avoidance of tax. But that hallmark E3 actually isn't subject to that main benefit test. So even if there was no tax motive at all, a transaction could be caught where you're transferring risks or assets cross-border within a group. And interestingly, given the timing, actually a lot of the IP onshoring which occurred could have been caught by that particular hallmark. And that might be one of the more interesting or surprising features of DAC6. You know, the fact that transactions which have no real tax motive or no tax nexus at all can be caught. And I think one of the other interesting features that we've discussed is the fact that when DAC6 was introduced, it involved a somewhat novel approach of 
pushing tax reporting onto someone other than the taxpayer. So as you mentioned, the reporting obligations rest with intermediaries. An intermediary is very broadly defined, so it covers anyone who designs, markets, organises, makes available or implements a reportable cross-border arrangement. And that definition obviously has the ability to apply to a lot of participants in the transactions. And Lynn, in terms of who those participants might be, as you say, it's an extremely broad universe. The advisors, absolutely. The lawyers, the accountants. And we see a huge focus on transactions by the law firms and the accountants vis-a-vis DAC6. But can you give us an example of who else might be an intermediary in a commercial transaction like an M&A deal, for example? Yeah, and I think that's a good point. I think the law firms and the accounting firms and other advisory firms accepted very early on that they were caught by that definition of intermediary. But in the wider financial services sector, in a corporate transaction, there's a host of other entities and service providers that are acting with respect to the transaction that could be caught. So if you think of a regulated fund structure, you know, which has an AFM and an investment manager and administrator, you know, how would you say that those parties are not involved in making available or implementing a transaction? And similarly, in a, you know, a corporate transaction, corporate service providers, corporate finance providers, all it possible that they are caught by that definition of intermediary. And I think a lot of the discussion around Axix has settled down since its introduction and we have 70 pages of very helpful revenue guidance. But I do think that question of who is an intermediary is one of the aspects which still has some debate around whether somebody is covered or otherwise. And I think we have seen different approaches being taken by different service providers. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Lynn. Again, I suppose to repeat the point, the law firms and the accounting firms are all over this. We just don't see huge evidence of other potential intermediaries like the ones you gave an example of, seeing this as being something that they are obliged to report on. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons for that, so to look at what an intermediary is required to do under DAC 6, if a transaction or arrangement is reportable, the relevant intermediary obviously has to report that to the tax authority, but it also has to report to any other intermediaries and the taxpayer. And I think that fact might actually be one of the reasons why other service providers have decided that they're not practically going to implement procedures around DAC 6 because they look at a transaction and they think, well, look, there's a law firm involved. There's an accounting firm involved. They're definitely going to be looking at this. I just don't have to do it and they'll let me know if the transaction is reportable. So I think to some extent, given how broad DAC 6 is, they've just taken an approach that actually we'll wait to be notified by another intermediary if the transaction is reportable. But I think as you're going to discuss later on, some of the recent developments in case law might lead to questions around that approach. And Lynn, tell us about some of the bad things that can happen if an intermediary doesn't observe the requirements, doesn't report, for example, when they should have. Yeah, and given that this is just a a reporting directive, I think the penalties and financial penalties particularly are really quite significant. So to give an example, basic penalty for failure to report a marketable transaction, €4,000. But there are also daily penalties. So, you know, on top of the €4,000, you can actually rack up €100 daily penalties. And similarly for delays. So if there is a delay by an intermediary in reporting a cross-border arrangement, there can be a fine of €500 per day after that fact. And I think it's worth noting that the timing requirements are really quite tight. So you have 30 days from effectively the earliest of when a transaction has been made available for implementation to actually report that if it's a reportable cross-border arrangement. And if you think about uh, a very you know big transaction, that time can fly by and suddenly you're into daily penalties. 
No, absolutely. And I mean, no organization, no um, compliance department, our COO or CFO wants to be in a position where their company has breached the law. I know the monetary penalties are even higher in some of the other EU countries, in Ireland at least, over a, a very low amount. Anybody who incurs a revenue penalty, their name is published. So yeah, look, it, you know, very problematic, clearly, if an organization failed to meet the obligations. So I'm going to move on now to talk about some important new developments, and in particular, a European Court of Justice case known as the Belgian Association of Tax Lawyers case. Sounds like just the type of people I'd like to hang out with. It's an important case which looked at DAC 6 in the context of legal privilege. So firstly, what is legal privilege? It's something that exists in common law countries like Ireland, also civil law countries like continental Europe. Now, we do tend to think about it in terms of something that the lawyer has or the, you know, a right that the lawyer has, but actually it's all about the client. It's the client's legal right that their communications with their lawyer will not be disclosed. So it is a, a right of the client rather than something attaching to the lawyer. So DAC6 already had certain protections vis-a-vis legal privilege, but it still required the lawyer to report the transaction to another intermediary, even where legal privilege applied. And this was the issue that the court looked at. They looked in particular at the European Charter of Fundamental Rights, which is based on and very similar to the better known European Convention on Human Rights, but the European Charter is actually part of EU law and was brought in in the Treaty of Lisbon. The court was very, very clear, and it's a very short judgment, by the way, it's an enjoyable read even. It says that lawyers are assigned a fundamental role in a democratic society, that of defending litigants, that a person must be able to consult with a lawyer without constraint, that clients who consult a lawyer can reasonably expect that their communication is private and confidential, and that their lawyer will not disclose to anyone that they are consulting the lawyer, and further, that the mere fact of having recourse to a lawyer is covered by legal privilege, and legal privilege privilege applies, importantly, even to the identity of the client. So on that basis, the court was very clear to say that that provision of DAC 6 was void and illegal. And we understand that a future DAC directive from the European Union will actually amend DAC 6. So probably DAC 8. So what can we take from that case? Look, a few observations. Firstly, very interesting to see kind of activist litigants in a tax arena. We've seen that in Ireland and also the UK over the years. I think it is becoming more common. Secondly, Lynn, you made the point about how other intermediaries may well have an obligation to report, but may be somewhat relaxed when they say, well, look, there's a law firm involved. This case is reducing that uh, number of intermediaries in a transaction. And we think it puts more onus then on the other intermediaries. In other words, the intermediaries who are not law firms to report themselves. It shows the ongoing significance of the European Court of Justice in the area of European Union law, in particular in the area of tax. So recently, the European Court has struck down a number of so-called state aid cases. These are cases where the European Commission has alleged that certain features of domestic tax law in the member states breach state aid. In other words, it is helping 
companies breach anti-competition rules. For the most part, the European Court has struck down those decisions by the European Commission. It underscores the protections that legal privilege can afford a client, which may be very important. And I think, finally, it's also important vis-a-vis certain future legislation that is being talked about at an EU level, in particular a proposed directive which will actually penalise advisors if they advise on certain tax matters. I think this case would set out a very clear set of guidance to say that something like that would be very tricky to implement indeed, particularly for lawyers. So look, finally, we're going to move on to the compliance aspects of DAC 6 and the technological approach that we believe is needed. If I just set the scene where we started with DAC 6, in fact, initially, the first phase of DAC 6 was to report on the prior two years of transactions. So that was a huge exercise in terms of reviewing past transactions. I know another big law firm described it as the biggest compliance project they'd ever undertaken. We knew in Maples that we needed a technological approach to that, as did other advisors that we spoke to. And we onboarded a third-party software tool. I'm going to pass over now to Sheila to take us further on that journey that we have been on. Thanks, Andrew. As you've just described, DAC6, when DAC6 was implemented earlier in early in 2021, we originally licensed an external reporting tool to help us with our reporting obligations. It became clear pretty early on that the tool did not suit uh, the requirements of our business, partly because it was too generic and wasn't tailored to our own business needs. So that started off the conversation around the possibility of whether Maples could develop our own internal internal tool. So once we started those discussions, we had to have a think about what are the requirements, what are the challenges to us of building that tool. And we identified a number of requirements early on. First of all, the tool had to be simple to use and intuitive, partly because a lot of the users are going to be people with no tax background. So the tool needed to be something that was simple enough for them to follow, but still maintained the integrity of the DAC6 process and was able to capture the correct data. Secondly, it needed to be something that could be tailored to our different business lines and also could be rolled out to our different uh, jurisdictions when necessary, especially uh, jurisdictions that are operating legal professional privileges, as Andrew pointed out, and also further down the line, non-EU mandatory disclosure regimes, which were also being brought in. Just give us an example, Sheila, of those other jurisdictions outside the EU that might or already have perhaps similar rules. For example, uh, one important one is the UK. Uh, The UK was originally, obviously, as part of the EU, was originally to adopt DAC6. So obviously, post-Brexit, it was able to, you know, it was more flexible in terms of what it could do. And it ultimately introduced a mandatory disclosure regime that was a lot uh, more simple than DAC6, but obviously still had to be looked at. So, you know, we had to take into account these nuances, both in terms of different DAC6 jurisdictions and other non-DAC6 jurisdictions. Another one that is coming down the line over the next couple of years is a Cayman-based mandatory disclosure regime. So again, our plan is to be able to tailor the tool in order to cover that as well. Thirdly, the tool needed to demonstrate a sufficient audit trail that could withstand scrutiny from 
a tax authority. And finally, we wanted it to be something that would work within our existing IT and client management systems in order to automate as much as possible the identification of processes that may require analysis and ultimate potentially reporting. So in order to do that, once we identified our basic requirements, we worked with a multifunctional team of tax specialists, IT developers, designers, and project managers over a very tight eight to nine month period and used that time to develop a tool which revolved around a simple yes, no questionnaire. And the questionnaire, unlike the original tool that we licensed, the questionnaire is tailored to our business and works, first of all, to eliminate early on any transactions that we know would never be reportable. So a very simple and obvious answer would be non-cross-border transactions. We have originally rolled out the tool quite successfully to our Irish business. And as we roll out in phase two to our various other offices, we will be tailoring the questionnaire to the requirements of different either business lines or different jurisdictions with the ultimate view that the managers, caseworkers, whoever who are using the tool can answer questions that are reasonably specific to their own individual offices and own, and own individual business line. So ultimately, the purpose was to make a questionnaire and a tool that was simple and easy and as intuitive as, as possible to complete. And Sheila, if I could jump in there, I mean, I think you've kind of put your finger there on what I feel has always been the most challenging aspect of DAC 6. You know, it's it's tax legislation, but it is requiring intermediaries who may not be and not, you know, generally wouldn't be tax people to analyze a transaction and perhaps report on it. And that might be a corporate lawyer in a law firm, that might be an accountant in an accounting firm, that might be the corporate finance advisor or investment manager that Lynn gave the example of. And I think that's how the directive works. Those individuals assess the directive and assess the transaction according to their own understanding, their own level of awareness. That's how they would be tested if they had failed to report, for example. Again, it would be based, you know, not as if they have to be an expert tax advisor, but based on their knowledge. So I think your point there about tailoring this tool to the particular practice area is highly relevant there. Absolutely, Andrew. And when we were developing the tool and developing the the questionnaire, we were very aware that most of the users were not going to be tax technical people who have embedded themselves in the directive and in the hallmarks. So when we developed this questionnaire, we did include very tailored examples as guidelines attaching to each of the hallmarks so that people would be able to identify transactions that they would be undertaking on a day-to-day -day basis and, and be able to match them to a specific hallmark, you know, if relevant. But definitely the most important thing was to make this simple, easy to use and relevant to the user's business. And practically, Sheila, I think having gone through that process and it was a novel one for both of us dealing with IT and project managers I think getting that engagement from the business was really fundamental to making sure that the the tool worked in the way that it was supposed to running the pilot running the user acceptance testing to make sure that you know it wasn't just something that worked from an IT perspective and it wasn't something that just worked from a tax technical perspective but that actually 
it worked for everyone that was going to have to use it. So I think practically, if somebody else was to be putting in place a similar tool or looking at their own processes, I think it's that engagement from the business that's really important. Absolutely, Lynn. And I think you'll agree with me, we were very lucky to have some really smart IT people and some really smart development people to work with. But a very, very important part of of this whole project was the, the tax specialists up front being able to identify what we want to achieve out of this tool to sit down and to invest that time into thinking about who's going to be using the tool, what do we want to achieve out of it, and being able then to to communicate that to the people who are who were developing it for us. And I think that was probably one of the most important facets of this project. And I think that was one of the reasons why for us, this project was was quite successful. And I think, Sheila, in terms of measuring success, you know, it's the compliance with the law, it's the technological aspect, but it's also very human, isn't it? I mean, it's winning over people to make sure that they find this process as, as easy as possible. I mean, thinking about the third-party software, it did the job, but it was rather complex, I think, for our colleagues to complete. Whereas in this case, again, as you say, it's been tailored to be bespoke, to be adaptable, but also to be relatively intuitive. Absolutely, Andrew. And I think we launched the tool in the Irish firm four months ago at this stage. So now we're, we're going through the, the learning curve phase. And what we're finding and, and I'm very pleased to, to report back what we're finding is we're, we're not getting issues with usability. We're not getting issues with the technical questions, etc. I think people are finding it quite easy to use. The only probably slight thing we have to look at surmounting is just sort of the human condition and, and people just putting things on the, on the long arm and not, you know, adhering to, to what they have to do immediately. But again, I find our caseworkers are getting used to it and much more efficient at completing it and just doing it when they have to do. So from from my perspective, I think it has been quite a success in terms of both developing the tool and providing our business with something that is easy to use and just ties in with their day-to-day business as usual. Agree, Sheila. And look, we built it for ourselves, but having done all of this hard work and having produced a very, very good product at the end, do you think it's something we could help other people with? You know, talk to some of our friends and contacts and clients out there in terms of perhaps helping them build something similar? Absolutely. As Lynn alluded to, this was the first time I think that most of us have been involved in this kind of project, working with IT and developers, and it was a very steep learning curve. But I certainly learned a lot about it. And certainly, you know, I feel that we as an organization should be able to provide some kind of guidance to other organizations organizations that are looking to to do something similar because it's not just the tax technical piece as well that's important but it is uh, the development piece the pre-planning you know there's lots of other different facets which people I think don't realize what's involved until they they launch into this so certainly there was a lot of learnings a lot of valuable learnings that came out of this which I think other organizations would would find valuable wonderful thank you very much Sheila so look to wrap up Lynn have you any final comments yeah, I think the one thing I would say, I mean, the fact that we're here again talking about DAX6 in 2023 is that it hasn't gone away. It is just as important as ever that people are looking at their transactions, looking at their arrangements and determining whether they're an intermediary, whether they have something to report and ensuring that they have those robust processes and procedures in place from a revenue audit perspective. Agreed, Lynn. So just finally, I'd like to thank Lynn and Sheila 
for joining us here today. And thank you out there for joining us. We look forward to having you with us for another one of our tax podcasts.